conversation about the things we share in common, our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Joined again by Ian Simpkins. Here we are. Hey, How are you, man? I missed you guys. I missed you too. You oh, know what? Wow. Wow. We are getting too enmeshed into one another's lives where I'm like, <laughs> oh, Ian's not here again today. <laughs> and then uh, now today it's like, Ian's here. Here we go. So the glad to have you the back. The excitement will wear off very quickly, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that's Segment right. Two. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot how annoying Ian is. <laughs> we have a bowl of popcorn on in front of us. We've got some caffeinated drinks. We're ready to roll. Also, Jim Minardi was recommending hot sauce on the popcorn, Mm-mm. to which you scoffed. I did. And I said, tell me more. <laughs> I've never done it before, but it sounds delish. It probably speaks to our personalities. I'm like, never done it before, never going to do it ever. That's, so. oh, that's probably like a BuzzFeed personality test. Yep. Like, what would you put on your popcorn? Brian Fromm's is like, nothing. Butter. <laughs> <laughs> Just butter. So it's good to have you back, man. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Always find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Hey, who wants to call us today? I do. Go ahead and give us a call, 312-660-2594. That is 312-660-2594. You can call us about something we're discussing, uh, or if you've got a question about something else, we'll pause the show and take that call. So hmm. feel free to give us a call sometime here. Uh, in the next two hours. Uh, so you were at a, uh, you guys were hosting a conference, right? An exponential conference at your church. Yep. Uh, give me, I know it's like drinking from a fire hose, but one or two highlights. What's one or two highlights? Oh my goodness. Well, it's actually two conferences. So Monday is sort of a pre-conference, but it's the New Thing Conference, mm. uh, which is a church planning conference that we started, um, or a church planning network rather. And then Exponential was uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. And it was remarkable not yeah. just for the fact that it's like a bunch of like really really like-minded passionate people but uh man a couple of heavy hitters that stand out to me like david washington his mm. story is bonkers he was uh he was about to be sentenced to 15 years in prison and had this like deal with god that he prayed like god if you don't get me out of this jail thing then you don't exist and long story short kind of got him out of this jail wow. thing so he became a pastor and a church planner in chicago and he's just remarkable but we i mean francis chan was there yeah. albert tate who's always just remarkable and a bunch of other genie stevens from soul city church awesome. brought the heat like it was just the whole time i was like i can't believe we get to do get this to be here. It, it just felt sort of like like someone's going to ask me to leave eventually. <laughs> like, I was I was a little jealous as I was seeing posts, people posting pictures. We kind of travel in the same circles of pastors and stuff and seeing people post pictures from there. I was like, ooh, that looks good. It was really that good. That looks it was good. really cool. So, uh, before we jump into a hard story, uh, I do want to. Uh, I'm going to be a good son here. My mother turned 70 years old today. Get out. Happy birthday, mom. She's Aww. a loyal listener, you know. Can I call her mom? Are we that close yet? Radio mom. Oh, happy birthday, radio mom. <laughs> She's like, I don't know that I don't, man. I've never met you before in my life. That's <laughs> up oh, so doing my good son duty. Happy well, birthday, mom. Well, love you. Well done. Well, I also love you. Yeah. <laughs> in a radio type Too far of way. Too. <laughs> in a radio type of way. Oh, boy. I've gone too far. Oh, you're back. You're back. So this is going to be the ultimate right-hand turn here. This is the ultimate move here. Uh, 
You actually sent it to me first yesterday. <sighs> this story yes. made me so sad yeah. and so angry uh-huh. and so all the feelings, <laughs> like everything. Yep. Uh, so why don't you tell us the story, a little bit of the uh, the turn in the life of comedian John Christ yesterday. Yeah, so I originally sent you the uh, Charisma Magazine article, mm-hmm. which is super, super long, and incredibly detailed. detailed. Yes. Uh, so there's a couple of other, not a couple of others, dozens of other articles now in response to that kind of summarizing. But I would recommend at some point actually sitting down and reading the Charisma one because it, it will probably answer a lot of the questions that people are about to have. But John Chris, as many people know, uh, kind of got his fame as sort of an internet viral video yeah. comedian, kind of latching on to evangelical subculture and poking what you know usually seemed like good, clean fun, and then launched a, uh, a pretty successful stand-up comedy career yeah. and has now climbed by some metrics the top 100 touring performing, performing artist list of yep. the world. Not got, Christian. Right, just, just performing in general. Artists. He's yep. got a Netflix special that's supposed to drop later this month. He's got a book that I think is supposed to come out in March. Wow. And then a bunch of sexual misconduct allegations came out. A number of the stories, uh, very detailed, very hard to read. Uh, as best I can tell up until this point, most of the women have uh, requested to remain anonymous. Mm-hmm. So I don't think anyone's come forward and uh, disclosed their own name yet. Um, but mostly just, I mean, including things like sexting and yep. uh, offering free tickets uh, to girls in various cities for a trip to his hotel room yep. and then revoking the ticket. If married they women. Married women. Yes. Yeah. Really, really <clears throat> heartbreaking, infuriating stuff. It man. is. So, again, background. He's 35-year-old comedian uh, with 1.2 million uh, Instagram followers. If you're if you're on Facebook or Twitter, you know him. He's the one who makes the satirical, funny Christian stand-up comic videos right. where you all laugh. You've, well, I mean, we probably played him in our churches at times. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and then to read this, well, here was my first thought when I read this. Again? Uh-huh. Another one? Yeah. We're going to go, we're going to do this conversation again? I know. And uh, it was, uh, that was, just the fact that that's the first thought that we have to have is just getting, <laughs> it's just getting so old. And then let me point out a couple other things that just, I'm going to shoot to all fields here. Okay. Because then in reading it, I was really struck. I was expecting to read... Uh, like he uh, had this one inappropriate relationship and it just came out in this. Right. This is pretty much who this guy has been, if you believe the reporting yeah, for a long time like that some people kind of knew it. It was kind of like the unspoken. And you're like, mm-hmm. how does that happen? Uh-huh. Like, at what point were other people going to be like, time out? Yep. Like, uh, this is not OK. Uh, and the third most random part of the story that I read that also just kind of blew my mind. And I don't know. There's something about Christian subculture here. He's done all this inappropriate stuff with women. But then there was a parenthetical in the uh, Charisma article that said, but he never had sexual intercourse because he wanted to be able to say that he's still a virgin uh-huh. before marriage. Right. I was like, excuse me? Uh-huh. Like, seriously? Yep. So I don't know, man. All of those just bother me so much. They all bother me. And uh, and and yeah, it really does. It'll be interesting because we know he's going to come back at some point and uh, away we go. All right. So a couple of thoughts. We posted this yesterday and uh, my buddy Aaron Loy, who is an incredible pastor and leader, he talks about it being really sad, how the apology mm-hmm. to him Sort of reminded him of Louis C.K.'s uh-huh. apology, but with a little more Christian language. He's like, I really hope that it's his good. journey leads him to brokenness and repentance. But let me kind of spend some time on this one, though. So somebody, uh, Brandon Tyler Cruz, said it's called being human. None of us are without without sin. Thankfully, ours just aren't on display for the whole world. Mm. So let me just 
with a couple minutes we have left, go for I it. really feel like I need to talk about this. Yeah, go for okay, it. Okay, so he's someone with a platform, right? Mm-hmm. A platform that he built, by the way, mm-hmm. and platform equals influence, and yes. influence equals power. Yep. So it's not just that it's under a microscope because he's a celebrity, but mm-hmm. because he's a person of influence and power, when he behaves this way with women, there is a very clear delineation of power dynamics that has to be talked about as exploitative and manipulative. It's yeah. not just a... Well, we all sin, so who are we to say anything or yep. who are we to cast the stone? Obviously, my prayer, I think our prayer, is for full contrition, full repentance, full healing. That is that is my hope. But for us to – and it is unfortunately often men who say, well, we're all human. Yeah. If we, let he who's without sin – no, 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 no. Someone who uses platform influence and authority – to get what they want, yep. sexual or otherwise, by the way, um, I think leaves a terrible taste in the yep. mouth of God. Yeah. I, I think that we have to be willing to call that what it is, not just like, ah, we all make mistakes. It yep. just happens to be very public. Yeah. And, and I think you make a great point because we have heard some people on our Facebook page and other places being like, well, he's not a pastor. He's not uh, this. And I'm like, oh, he's he's a follower of Jesus and he holds more influence uh, right. than of the pastors out there shaping evangelical culture, shaping thought. And you can't read the article at Charisma or even the shortened version of Christianity Today without going, this guy is, he, this wasn't a one-time indiscretion. Right. It was just this hypocrisy going on. And I'm with you, man. Like the people who want to, who want to bang the drum on grace and forgiveness and restoration. I'm all for that. We've now said this on too many shows in a row with these stories. Right. Grace and forgiveness does not mean a platform and a bringing back of the platform. And it will just be interesting. I'm sure we'll be disappointed by the way this plays out. Yeah. And accountability is not the enemy either, though, to say, to call someone to accountability or maybe both sides of the coin to say they're forgiven is not the same as condoning Mm -hmm. or reinstatement. But accountability is also not an attack either. And yes. I think we, we've we just got to get better at talking about these things. And it grieves me. It really does make it it makes my heart sad. It makes me very sad. So you can find that article at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Again, you can call us at 312-660-2594. Tell us where we're right. Tell us where we're wrong. Tell us uh, your thoughts. Well, again, Ian is back today, and we are happy for that. <laughs> You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Real excited to have you joining us today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Twitter, at Common Good Talk. And you can give us a call, 312-660-2594, 312-660-2594. You call us even if you just want to hear from our producer, PJ. He'll answer it. He'll say hello. <laughs> It's very friendly. It'd be funny if, like, through the glass, we see him continuing to take phone calls and then hang up. It's like, oh, they don't want to talk to you guys. They, they want to hear PJ's sweet, sultry voice. He's like, wrong number. <laughs> the man behind Interweb Insanity. Yeah, mm-hmm. by the way, while you were gone, we were uh, we were doing a little bit more uh, birthing of uh, what would it look like to run a promotion where you and I both get to pick Panera dates for PJ <laughs> and then have them on air. <laughs> Panera dates. We could call it You Pick Two. <laughs> 
That's, that's, so, so that's a dumb good. joke. I'm sorry. That was so good, and he's so mad. <laughs> Panera, by the way, kind of touts itself as like a budget food option. It is not. It is not. Have we ranted on this before? Nope. What grinds your gears? Oh, it kind of. I don't ever go, and I gotta. I go to Panera all the I time. I know you do. Chili, I gotta, man. Chili. I did the half and half sandwich salad thing, and they're like, "That'll be twenty four dollars." I'm like, "Oh no, I just want one. I don't." Uh, that's I, not a bargain at all. I took my family of five, so me, my wife, and our three kids, and I believe it was $60. That's like an actual night yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. We, got, we got to move on. I'm going to get angry. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. You've got a lot stored up from the last couple yeah, of days. Yeah, that's what <laughs> You're you like angry, roll. Ian, don't You're, you? <laughs> it's good for ratings. <laughs> so, again, feel free to give us a call, 312-660-2594, Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, at msn.com, but you've probably seen this around. Former U.S. Attorney Jeff Sessions, who actually, I believe today or yesterday, announced he's going to be running for his old, uh, his former uh, congressional seat in Alabama. He spoke at Northwestern University in Chicago on Tuesday night, despite attempts by protesters to disrupt the event. Video posted online shows protesters trying to enter the building from a rear entrance until a group of police officers intervenes. Afterwards, photos show... Uh, that Sessions had to be escorted from the building by security officers. Here's what he said. I'm just going to tell you, this is stupid. This is not right, Sessions said at one point, according to tweets from the student journalists. This great university should not be putting up with this kind of trash. Oh. Numerous appearances by conservative speakers on the nation's college campuses have been disrupted or postponed in recent years amid what's come to be called cancel culture. The efforts by some groups to silence any speakers with whom they disagree. Sessions' speech, say that five times fast. No, thank you. Sessions' speech, titled The Real Meaning of the Trump Agenda, was sponsored by Northwestern's college Republicans. So I think it's important to say he was invited there by a group whose decision to invite the former Trump cabinet member was debated for on campus for weeks. Nevertheless, an informal poll taken Monday by the campus publication North by Northwestern. That's funny. Found that 90 percent of respondents thought Sessions should be allowed to speak on campus. But one student identified as Zachary Novikov said he didn't believe Sessions should be welcome. Uh, There's a limitation to free speech, this student said. That ends at overtly racist old white dudes. So what do you think about all this? Whether this is not a do I agree with Jeff Sessions or not? Am I pro Trump or not? That's I don't think that's the issue at hand here. This is a speaker me going. I don't like what he has to say or don't think he has the right to say it. So we're going to shout him down. Uh, Cancel culture. All of that. What are your thoughts about this story, but also kind of the greater principle at play here? I actually don't think this is cancel culture. I think cancel culture is much more about something that is found out about a celebrity uh, Mm. regarding their personal or online behavior that once unearthed, the mob mentality decides this person is no longer to be celebrated. Yep. yep. So that could be any kind of previous allegations or stuff. And I guess they're really I I have no idea how far back that goes. We saw with the. Shane Gillett's story, the guy that was supposed to be on SNL, and then they unearthed some of his podcast, which was only about six months old, and they're like, oh, you still have some opinions that aren't aren't (laughs) We gotta be careful. His apology was like not an apology at all, so that's kind of my first response. It doesn't really feel like cancel culture. It feels like this is a group of students who really disagree with Sessions' ideologies, which Mm. they're entitled to do. Yes. I do also think, though, this is probably gonna be unpopular. I'm ready for it. I think Part of when universities are at their best is when we are exposed to even extreme views that we disagree passionately with. I think that's one of the environments that we're supposed to learn 
to actually dialogue and listen with the people that we don't have anything in common with yeah. because, and I think when we fail to actually provide healthy spaces for that, we create the kind of adults that we often yeah. see online who can't listen to anyone unless yeah. they're the twin of their ideologies. I think that is uh, dangerous. Now, I think it's certainly within these students' rights to say we really disagree with this guy. Yeah. We don't like anything he stands for. Obviously, uh, I just I wonder a little bit of like what does this solve? Yep, yep. I was explaining. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. Uh, you'll be proud. I used the uh, the word confirmation bias, which is uh, right kind of straight from you. I was very proud. And, thank you. And uh, <laughs> the conversation was that uh, we're so polarized as a culture. One of the reasons is because the people on the far right uh, politically only listen and read and interact with media of people on the far right. Right. Fox News, whatever blog, whatever else. Right. People, Echo chambers, right. People on the far left are only interacting with people who agree with them. And so all we're doing is getting confirmation of what we already think we believe. And it just pushes you right. further. And I couldn't agree with you more that college campuses of all places are great places for there to be a dialogue. And go- I'm OK with them protesting outside. It's just this shouting down of people that you don't you've determined don't have the right to speak. Right. Feels like a really. Uh, it feels dangerous and it feels uh, like uh, like the opposite of what we're trying to do in our culture. Like, all right, let's debate. Let's have the ideas. And chances are, uh, you know, people are going to disagree on a college campus with what he says. So let him say it and let, let's let have the, uh, right. the interaction of ideas going on. Well, I think of like there's a couple of stories in the last year or two that I've come across where like a black pastor We'll sit down and have a conversation with a Klansman. Mm. And you think, okay, if anyone has the right yeah. to play the cancel culture card, yes. it would be an African-American pastor. Yes. I think if if they're willing to sit down, and not every story is this like beautiful conversion story and yep. they walk out holding hands. I just think it bums me out on both sides, and you mentioned both sides, yeah. I think, appropriately, right? It's not just confirmation bias. It's echo chambers. And That's so I good. think the deeper that we embed ourselves in a line of thinking and reasoning that already looks like us, mm-hmm. I really, truly think it's it becomes harder and harder to pull out of it. Because the hard part then becomes in culture, who ultimately gets to decide who's worthy to be heard and not right, heard? Right. Who gets to say, uh, take it Northwestern here. Their poll said that 90% of their respondents said he should at least be able to speak, even if we disagree with them. But that small minority was able to disrupt the event right, and do right, this. Right. And again, it's different for me, like, protesters outside with signs like that's different right but like the nope we're going to make it so that you can't speak now we finished it but he kind of you could tell there was a lot of frustration about it uh because then what ends up happening well we're going to do it to your speaker we're going to do it to yours and then what what are we what are we even about then as a culture that prides itself on free speech and and the differing of ideas and uh, yeah it just kind of goes against the core kind of of what we've been uh founded upon i think free speech does have its limits i think that is the one thing that student does kind of get right but for him to (laughs) i i don't know that he is the arbiter of it. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's right. Right. Or that small collection of students. That's not to say that they like like you've been saying, there are certainly places where we need to say, nope, you're done talking. Yep. Someone cut his mic. You yep. there. There are limits to all of that. And I think it's we want to be careful to make sure that th- those things are still understood, that it isn't free speech isn't an all things go all the time. Yeah smorgasbord either yep. you know agreed agreed so we'd love your feedback again you can do so at facebook the common good radio show call us 
Six six zero sounds like me in high school. Call <laughs> us. I want to hang out. Somebody, please call me. Three one two six six zero two five nine four. Three one two six six zero two five nine four. Well, coming up next, I just got two two uh, a first name and a last name for you. Uh, an article by Scott Sauls. Never heard of him. <laughs> then you haven't listened all week. <laughs> We're going to discuss an article he has called "Behaving Christianly in Our Politics." Coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. i got to be honest, sometimes the danger of live radio is putting popcorn in your mouth and then having your producer <laughs> point to you. <laughs> it's not usually popcorn. What's sort of your go-to like goldfish or some pretzels. Mm, pretzel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> These pretzels are making me thirsty. Right? The old Seidenfeld reference mm-hmm, right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, pardon me that I just need to get through that popcorn that was just in my mouth. But <laughs> glad to have Ian Simpkins back with us today on this uh, Thursday afternoon. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Uh, and go ahead and give us a call if you want. We can talk about the stuff we've already talked about. John Christ uh, or Jeff Sessions at Northwestern. Uh, some of the stuff we're about to talk about with politics. Um, yeah, Sesame to hear from Street you. is coming up. Sesame Street's coming up. We're all over the board this today. Is a, this man. is a wonky show, man. Russell Moore discussing Sesame Street. I leave yes. for three days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of things to talk about. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's good to have you back. Thanks, man. Uh Scott Sauls, the one constant on our show. He's on our show more than you and I are. <laughs> he's like he's like the alpha and omega of the show. How have we still never had him on? Like he's I don't even he likes our tweets sometimes, but I don't know that he knows that we have this radio show in Chicago. Where we talk about him all the time. <laughs> That's true. What can we do? Here's what to I'm break picture. Scott Sauls. He's going to be sitting here one day. You and I here. It's going to be like that Chris Farley Saturday Night Live skit. <laughs> so do you remember that time we read that? T- remember the time you tweeted or that it? Like, that was awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> it's like when Chris Farley has Paul McCartney uh-huh. there. I have no doubt that we would make him thoroughly uncomfortable. <laughs> Do you remember that? Remember that blog you wrote about? <laughs> that was great. And trying to like hold his hand while we talk. He's like, all right, I got to go. <laughs> Scott, first question. Which one of us do you like more? <laughs> He's like, which one are you again? Yeah, where am I talking again today? <laughs> anyway, Scott Sauls, he is a pastor uh, down in Tennessee. At a Presbyterian church, he used to be the assistant pastor uh, underneath Tim Keller uh, at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. And Scott Sauls, uh, one reason I really enjoy bringing him up is because so much of what he writes and tweets and blogs about is is just things that I tend to agree with, uh, that I really resonate with. Uh, and especially as we move closer and closer into this election year, uh, Sauls' book, which I referenced, I believe, yesterday called Jesus Outside the Lines. If you want to get in some ideas and some thoughts about how we as Christians are to uh, kind of approach politics, maybe the best book, one of the best books mm. I can encourage you to read is Jesus Outside the Lines by Scott Sauls. Was that the tweet that you read too? Was that the yes. Time? Okay. Yes, yes. And so I listened. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> or you maybe you saw on our Facebook that not everybody agreed with the tweet. That's true. That's true. Usually people who don't agree are your friends. <laughs> what does that mean? Read into that what you want. Stay strong, my friends. <laughs> Think for yourself. So Sauls, uh, this was a uh, an article that was an excerpt uh, from Jesus Outside the Lines, and it's entitled this, Behaving, quote, Christianly in our politics. And so when I read that, I went, I'm intrigued. 
I am interested. Uh, and so he goes on to say, uh, sometimes the sermon can be polarizing. He talks about the polarizing nature of sermons. He says, for us preachers, his mentor, Tim Keller, said the longer it takes people to figure out where we stand on political parties, in all likelihood, the more faithfully we're preaching Jesus. Mm. Let me read that one again. <laughs> for us as preachers, and I would probably say uh, as followers of Jesus, as disciples, I think that's fair. the longer it takes people to figure out where we stand on political parties, in all likelihood, the more faithfully we're preaching Jesus. He writes, as is the case with every paradox associated with Christianity, there is a both and and a neither nor component as it relates to political loyalties. Unless a human system is fully centered on God, and he writes parenthetically, no human system is, Jesus will have things to affirm and things to critique about it. The political left and the political right are no exceptions. He says, that helps me. I hope it will help all of us, especially those tired of the rancor and caricature that so often accompanies political discussions. Mm. So good. Yeah, that's really good. And it's a sentiment that I think I've wrestled with a little bit because I kind of wished I'd been on the show for this because I think I actually disagreed with his tweet. Did you? I did for other reasons that I don't I don't know that we have to get into right now. But it's kind of one of those. What are the original tweet says? Oh, it was like Scott Saul speaking some truth. (laughs) And I was reading. I was like, oh, I don't think I agree with that. And I'm 50 percent of this show. But that's neither here nor there. In general, though, I I think the uh, the dare you disagree with Scott (laughs) Saul. He's sort of like the show's pope, isn't he? Yeah, like we, we have to, we we have to, re- we have to reconsider our, relation, our, our radio relationship here. <laughs> Wait a minute. Isn't this whole article about how to disagree well? Isn't that exactly what we're there, talking about? There are limits. <laughs> oh, this is a real inception moment, both with a previous story. Oh, that's funny. That's <laughs> but funny. I think what he's talking about, though, like I think, how would I say this? I think there's a big difference between... Finding our affiliation with the political party mm-hmm. and finding our identity with the political party. Does that really make sense? It I does. Think, I think affiliation is actually fine. Mm-hmm. I think it's fine. Uh, what often troubles me, though, is that it we seem to take it 15 steps beyond affiliation yeah. to like, th- this is my tribe. These are my mm. people, hell or high water. I also wish I would hear more people just be honest that clickbait sells, yes. that caricatures are what move the needle is what gets votes that some of it like if i could get both sides to at least admit publicly this is all political theater to some degree Mm -hmm. like that would lower my blood pressure considerably yes but it feels like not only does it seem like theater on both sides so often but there's not even like an ownership that what we're doing is yeah this okay so this is a little bit amplified and this Mm. is a little bit of a caricature like you can't even get to that point for people to admit this is a little bit more than what we actually believe, yep. but we know that we have to overshoot to kind of get to the middle where we actually want to be. I think left and right are probably way more similar than they would like to let yes. on. And so when we create these these dichotomies and this chasm between the two and then we like knock Jesus to a third or fourth rung as a result, that to me is all sorts of problematic. Yeah, you and I did that uh, study a couple. We did that article to talk about that study a couple months, a month or two ago. More in common. Saying yeah. how much we actually have in common, but it's that polarization that we were talking about last segment too, where we just believe that everybody else is like completely far right or far left because right. that's what we hear about. Uh, he goes on to say, this is kind of what you were just talking about. Uh, people from varying political persuasions can experience unity under a first allegiance to Jesus, the King hmm. who on the cross removed and even killed the dividing wall of hostility between people on the far left, people on the far right and people everywhere in between. 
Wherever the reign of Jesus is felt, differences are embraced and even celebrated as believers move toward one another in unity and peace. I like that he's acknowledging Mm -hmm. there when it says first allegiance that there's probably a second allegiance and a third allegiance that might be a political party in there somewhere. And it's acknowledging that even as believers, we're going to disagree politically. He's just saying, don't let those political disagreements. You said it as identity, which was really good. Don't let those define you more than what unifies you with that other person. Yeah, I think I might disagree that there are second and third allegiances. I think allegiance is probably the wrong word. Preferences. Yeah. Okay. I could. I one allegiance. Some other preferences. Preference. I can get behind. I like that much better. I think allegiance by definition, and this is probably semantic. So what do I know? But I think an allegiance to Jesus of Nazareth. Yep. No, I think you're right. I think that's fair. Does I think I think set the stage for no other allegiances. I think you're right. But to say like, oh yeah, and a lot of that's based on I was born in this part of the country, or I was raised in this kind of environment, or this particular. Theology was what I was sort of swimming in until this point. Like all of those things obviously inform political affiliation, political persuasion, political uh, preferences. But I think we and we talk about all the time when the cross and the flag hold hands. That's when it starts to get in trouble. When we start to say, and I think Jesus does speak to this. You're trying to fit two different people on a platform intended for one. Mm. And when we do that, they it just doesn't work well. And yeah. it's not Jesus being like a really jealous junior hire. It's like, no, I need to be number one. Yeah. I think it's because Jesus knows like, man, when you get this out of order, nothing yeah. else works. And so we look at a Christianity that has Jesus on the third rung and we're like, why doesn't this work for me? You're like, yeah. Oh, because what you're doing isn't actually Christianity. That's really good. That's really good. As a pastor, uh, are you, uh, how are you viewing? Uh, literally, we're like almost to the day, a year from the election. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling about the pastoring in the, in this next year? Are you excited to tri- to wrestle with people and do stuff? Or are you kind of like, Oh, this mm. is going to, I'm not going to enjoy this at all. Um, that's a good question. We didn't have a radio show last time we had an election. That's so there's true. a part of me that's like excited to like dive into it. There's a part of me that's tired. There's a little part of me that feels like a political refugee. Like, uh, where do I even live at this point? You know what I mean? Like, there's, yep. there's all of that's kind of swimming. I'm really excited to learn. I feel like I'm in a better place now than, than three or four years ago okay. to, to really sit and patiently bite my tongue and actually listen and learn from other perspectives. So that part to me is uh, exciting. And I think I'm excited for this platform, for this space to be, be a place for us to kind of like really, really dive in deep to some of these conversations. This is going to be fun. It's going to be a fun year that I'm not really looking forward to as a pastor. Really? But I am looking forward to as a radio host. Oh, interesting. (laughs) That would be a fun segment. Things you're looking forward to as a radio host, but not as a pastor. Yep, that's one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'd love to hear what you've got to say. That article from Scott Sauls will be up on our Facebook page if it's not already. uh, The Common Good Radio Show. You can also call us at 312-660-2594. Uh, Ian teased this out earlier, but coming up next, we are going to ask this question or talk about what Russell Moore writes about what the church can learn from Sesame Street. Coming up next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Oh, it feels like childhood, doesn't it? That just feels like childhood. For some of you, you're like, that is the strangest music they've ever come back to. You think anyone listening doesn't know what that is? I don't think so. No, everyone knows what that everyone is. Everyone knows what that is. Yes. Whether you grew up watching Sesame Street or not. But if you're that one person who doesn't, that is the theme song to Sesame Street. Just turned 50 this Isn't week. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yesterday, Sesame Street turned 50. And so if you are, you know, 50 or below, you grew up, Sesame Street was an important part of 
uh, of your childhood. You did you uh, you watch a lot of Sesame Street? I sure, up? I sure did, Brian. Are your kids starting to watch Sesame Street? Well, we live in a digital age, Brian, and uh, <laughs> we don't we don't have cable or anything. This is a little inside uh, baseball, so we just have like YouTube playlists that run the gamut from Sesame Street to Wiggles to yep. other weird bootleg stuff that people <laughs> put on the internet that I can't believe. You know, the problem with like letting a YouTube playlist just play. You like leave the room to come back. You're like, what are you watching? <laughs> what what is, that? is this garbage fire? It's really scary. That's really funny. I actually didn't. I watched Sesame Street growing up, but not a ton. I don't remember a ton. My wife, on the other hand, that explains a lot. Watched a lot of Sesame Street, and I watched a ton of it with my three kids as they were getting oh, you older. Did. Okay, okay. So uh, every kid now goes through an Elmo stage, and uh, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, those songs get in. You missed, yeah, Elmo. And do you remember uh, when one of those Tickle Me Elmos went haywire, and, like the motherboard went nuts? <laughs> No. There was this whole news expo. I think it was here in Chicago, actually, and the something with the voice box went crazy. And whenever the kid like squeezed it, it would say "Kill Kyle," <laughs> and the mo- and the kid's name was Kyle. And the mom was like, "I was doing dishes, and I heard the the Elmo doll go kill Kyle." She was like, "I'm really scared about this," and I was like, "This is a very terrifying story." Oh, that's funny. That's that not for Kyle. That wasn't not for funny. Kyle or the family. So you might be wondering why are we talking about Sesame Street? Uh, because. Uh, other than the fact that it just turned 50. Well, coinciding with its turning 50, Russell Moore, who we've also quoted many times on here, Russell Moore is somebody that uh, I think we both respect highly. Uh, he wrote an article the other day entitled, What the Church Can Learn from Sesame Street, which when I read that title, I was like, okay, like that's got me hooked. Uh, I, I'm willing to listen to that. And so what are some of the things he says as he starts to unpack maybe how the church uh, can learn some things from uh, from Sesame Street. Well, he actually makes a really it's a it's a pretty brilliant article actually, and I'm always interested in communicators that make unique cases for mm-hmm. what the church could be. You and I are both pastors. Yep. We talk about this ad nauseum, but it is something interesting. I think about he mentions how churches should contextualize the gospel, addressing people in a language that can be heard and understood. And previously, he's talking about how Sesame Street was able to do that, and that's mm-hmm. a big part of their success. But he says. Contextualization itself is not enough. Some of the most self-consciously contextualized churches are faddish and hyper-consumerist. They're more Mm. like the mass-marketed latter years of Sesame Street and less like the early, innovative, culture-shaping times. And we've all got the Tickle Me Elmo kinds of Christian ministries we can stand. (laughs) Sesame Street was effective because the program didn't just contextualize to the present. It contextualized to the future. Mm. And I think that's kind of the... The anchor. He's talking about how uh, the show could effectively create visions for what could be in a way that was not only educational, but I think in a lot of ways pretty inspiring. Yeah. The ways some of the themes that they tackled, some of the issues and conversations they were having, again, in a, in a world where most everyone was puppets, which I think is a really uniquely yes. subversive kind of way to talk about not just current context, but like what would it look like in the future to, to look like this? And I think that's a lot of what he's kind of calling the church to be here. Yeah, he says here, uh, I, I forgot about this. Like, if you think about when it started 50 years ago, the fact that Sesame Street with puppets and with uh-huh. characters was showing uh, kids racial equality uh-huh, right. uh, and made it kind of more normal, uh, Russell Moore says here, is was revolutionary uh, and uh, it, it just um, it, it's kind of like Mr. Rogers, too. Right. Mr. Rogers is getting this whole new uh, thing in, in pop culture right now. I actually had a chance to see the movie that's coming out soon. Mm-hmm. And why is that? It's because Mr. Rogers was able to do something within the culture that we all long for. And it kind of made us think in Sesame Street, like you said, was able to do this same thing. New York Times, he writes, speaks of the messianic mission of Sesame Street. 
And he writes, that's, of course, tongue in cheek. But we as the body of Christ really do have a mission that's quite literally messianic. Mm-hmm. He said there is a lot for the church to learn here. I love what he says. He says, I wonder what would happen if our churches were to recognize our role in showing people the future, mm-hmm. not just in our teaching and in our going, but in our being. What kind of witness could we be to our communities as fragmented as they are by race and class and economics and politics? If the very makeup of our congregation signaled the manifold wisdom of God in which the, here there is no Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. What if our children were accustomed to seeing black pastors of majority white churches and vice versa? What if a hotel janitor were named chairman of deacons in a wealthy suburban megachurch because all recognized his spiritual maturity Mm. and nothing else mattered? What if our churches pioneered tort reform, not by arbitration alone, but by Christians agreeing cheerfully to be defrauded? I think that is such an important call and one that most people, I don't think, would assume at least the first blush that Sesame Street was doing that. But like all culture shifting entertainment, uh, there almost always is like a thing beneath the thing. Um, for good or for ill, that is like shaping or pointing yep. or forming in some kind of capacity. And I think, I think his call to think through these things is really needed. Yeah, I love he says, it seems to me, uh, if this were the case, we'd have less abstract theology and fewer faddish principles to teach. We'd be announcing mm. to the outside culture and to those who've taken refuge with us in Christ, welcome to the future, to the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of Christ in miniature. Mm. And I just think. He, the way he kind of paints that picture that Sesame Street was kind of ahead of its time, pointing right. things out, being prophetic in some ways with puppets and other things. Mm-hmm. Again, so powerful. Why, why do you think this is so difficult for us to kind of grab a hold of? The, like the, the idea of like future cognizant, not just teaching, but being like mm. it's one thing. You know, you and I have a unique space with the sermon every week with a quiet room, a microphone and a stage. Yeah. That's super odd. That's just a very unique, weird thing that we do every week. So I think in that environment, it's easy to kind of like teach for the future. And we call that vision casting, Mm. you know, but why do you think it's so difficult to actually like live that out in our bones and our families and our communities? It's a great question. I think part of the answer is that (laughs) we have so much anxiety and stress and things going on in the present. Our lives are just filled with things. I can look at my phone and see so much. I can, my kids have so much. I have so much. It gets hard to, yeah, the old see the forest from the trees, right? It's hard to get my mind up and be able Mm. to look. I treat church like that often. Like we got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. Got to do. Got to keep going, and also you know, people are like, where are we going to be in five years? You're like, oh god, that's a right. valid question. <laughs> right, right. That's I was a trying to fix question. the broken toilet right now. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I just want to read how Moore ends this. He says the Sesame Street idea was a product of its time, a great society era utopian project rooted in an understanding of history as quote progressive. The people of Christ know better. If our congregations are workshops of kingdom righteousness, Hmm. we'll have to make it clear that this isn't natural and it isn't due to history or to progress or to us. Listen to this last line. We'll have to say something like this church has been brought to you by the letters Alpha and Omega. Oh, Some that's people so are good. good writers, right? That's so good. <laughs> Sometimes people can really write. Sesame it's so Street. Good the right amount of cheesy. Our, uh, Sesame Street and the church. Uh, a cool article just to get us thinking. You can find it at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. The Common Good Radio Show. You can always call us, 312-660-2594. Coming up next, we're going to talk about something that just happened in a chapel service today with Francis Chan. Uh, That has a lot of people talking. That's coming up next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.
It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. You can call us 312-660-2594. 312-660-2594. Find us on Facebook at The Common Good radio show or find our podcast wherever it is you find podcasts go ahead subscribe rate review thanks to all those who do that i just turned around i'm not i'm still not good with being dark at five o'clock oh yeah it's completely uncomfortable this is like time of year we're like oh it's now we're heading into it it's funny too now with like little kids because there's been more days than i can count where like the kids go to bed my wife and I are like, oh, it's probably time for bed, right? She's like, it's 7.15. I'm like, oh, do I have to stay awake? I'm it's tired dark outside. Yeah, right. My it's body cool. is shut down. And they said, it's going to be like, uh, sorry, you love when I go weather. It's going to be like <laughs> 12 degree wind chill tomorrow. I know. Yeah, this is, oh, there always comes a point. Not yet. It's usually January, February. My wife and I look at each other and be like, how do we live here? Like you have friends like posting from like Colorado yes, right. or like Florida, mm-hmm. somewhere it's warm. And you're like. Well, well, it's Illinois. You know what will be fun? We've not done this show yet coming out of summer into fall into winter. We started in January. It's going to get dark. <laughs> so, right, right. Like, so our energies were all up. We're like, we're bringing new yeah. this. We know what we're doing. Like it is. People are going to see like the the despondency <laughs> hit us hard, I think. Yes, yes. Oh, those are going to be fun shows. <laughs> can't, can't wait. That's just like <laughs> all the music's in a minor key. And we're just brooding. Welcome, people. I'm cold. <laughs> <laughs> Call us, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Facebook? What's Facebook? <laughs> just a shadow of reality. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yep. Uh, we're just going to have some balance in nature, and we're going to call it a day Ew. here. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Francis Chan. Francis Chan. Uh, you just heard him two days ago, right? Yeah. At, uh, Exponential. I was, I was talking with him. Were you? Oh, I mean, I mean uh, okay. All right. Did you go up to make Ian Simpkins the Common Good Radio Show? Yeah, of course. That's how I introduce myself to everybody now. No, thank you. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, I do. I will say this, though. I, I Maybe people don't realize this. He's super crazy nice. And insanely down to earth. Like Seems I like really it. do mean that. But a lot of people seem like that, though. Haven't you ever met like one of your faith heroes? Like you meet them and you're like, "Wow, you are not at all like you come across on yes, stage." That has happened. That's another segment we'll do. Uh, that should be that should be grinds my gears. <laughs> yes. Chan is like a. It's I, I don't know how to explain it. He's like incredibly present. He's very kind. He's very down to earth. That's awesome. And there's there's been a this. Uh, uh, kind of progression going on in Francis Chan's life that if you followed his readings and his, or his books, his writings, not his readings, his writings. Yeah, how do we follow his readings? <laughs> like, you ever have that moment where you're like, what word am I looking for? Uh, Every day of my life. <laughs> or his, uh, you know, things uh, that he has talked about. You know, he was a pastor of a mega church in, I believe, Simi Valley, California. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of out of the blue left the mega church because mm-hmm. he was like, my work here is done. And he was getting really uncomfortable at the mega church. Uh-huh. Scene. He wrote Crazy Love, which is a multi-million dollar, multi-million selling, multi-million dollar selling book, mm-hmm. gave a lot of the money away. Mm-hmm. Uh, he started some like house churches in San Francisco. So mm-hmm. a lot of this kind of moving on. Now, when you hear him speak, he speaks more and more about his time in Africa, mm-hmm. his time here. And you're like. All right, there's something going on with him, but yet he's still speaking and speaking and speaking. Uh, and so 
Uh, this is hot off the presses. Literally this morning, whoa! He was speaking at chapel at Azusa Pacific University, uh, talking about how him and his family were recently in Myanmar, uh, going hut to, going from hut to hut with a translator, telling people about Jesus. Hmm. And Chan told of the eagerness of the people uh, who were there to hear and embrace the Christian message. And he remarked this to his wife. And then we're going to play some of what he talked about. He remarked to his wife on the plane ride home. What do we do on a normal day that even compares to this? And now we want you to hear about two minutes of what he said uh, going forward in his chapel message at Azusa Pacific. But this will be my last chapel message. Um. My family and I are going to move to Asia in February. And uh, there's this thing where a few months ago we were in, uh, in Myanmar and my wife and I and kids we were just with a translator going from hut to hut in these slums and trying to explain to people who Jesus is. And these people had never even heard of him. And the eagerness, the way they listened and seeing people get baptized. And uh, it, it was just like, whoa, what do we do on a normal day that even compares to this? And so as we got on the plane home, I'm like, honey, I just, I think it's time to move. Um, it, it's kind of like, I, I describe it like, this. I feel like I've been fishing in the same pond my whole life. And now there's like thousands of other fishermen at the same pond and our lines are getting tangled and everyone's, you know, fighting over stupid things. And one guy, you know, tries some new lure and we go, oh, he caught a fish. Let's all try his method. And it just feels like, what are we all doing here? Like, what if I heard of a lake that's like a five mile hike away and no one's fishing it? And they're saying, man, the fish are biting. Just throw a hook in there and they'll go for it. Man, I'll make that five-mile hike if I love fishing. Like, what would keep me at that same pond? I'll tell you what would keep me at the pond is I built a house on the pond. And all my friends have houses on the pond. And we don't even fish that much. We just go out and we hang out and we talk and we play. And I don't want to leave my friends. But if my calling is to go fish... And there's no one fishing over there. Why wouldn't I go? I mean, that's powerful. Yeah. That's powerful. So what he said is his family, they're moving to Myanmar uh, in February. And this is a big deal in the in the kind of the Christian world because he speaks everywhere. Right. He's kind of a, a big one. But I'm, I'm more curious. Just your thoughts. I mean, you like you said, he didn't say this at Exponential. He did two not. Days ago. No. Uh, and uh, just so what, uh, let's start there. What are your thoughts when you heard this and you read this today? You know, it's interesting because I, I immediately started to think about what he did say at Exponential, and it was it was a really I really hesitate to use this phrase, mm-hmm. but it's the only phrase I can think of. It was a really spirit led moment mm-hmm. where it just seemed clear that he's like, right, we're going to veer from the the plan a little bit." And he was talking about the lordship of Jesus, and he said, "The problem is a lot of us are not we're not really submitting ourselves to the lordship mm-hmm. of Jesus in our churches, where we're the, we're actually the lead pastors, not not Jesus. And mm-hmm. if we think we're the head." then the rest of the body falls in line for better or for worse. And so it was a very, like he, you know, had people get on their knees. It was just a, an incredible moment. Yeah. And um, it, made, it made me think of the, the Paul Harvey quote where he says, we, we've been called to be fishers of men, but most of us are just keepers of the aquarium. Mm. It's that same kind of sentiment, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that's yeah. like that. Now, as a side, I don't know that people love to be referred to as fish who are just eating lures, <laughs> but that, but Jesus himself does talk about, you know, being fishers of men, even though that was kind of a rabbinic turn of phrase. I just think, He's someone, whether you like his books or his style or his theology, he seems really intent 
on actually going where he feels the spirit's leading. Yeah. He seems to have been doing like I remember the first time I saw him preach, it was like 12 years ago uh-huh. and I'd never heard of him. And my friend leans over to me and he goes, uh, prepare to be rocked. And I was like, <laughs> what does that mean? And then we were done. I was like, I understand what you mean. Now. Yep, like there's a, yep. there's just a sense in him. That's like, I don't care what any of you think about what I just said. I, this is what I believe God is calling me and my family to do. And mm. like in this day and age, I, I just find that incredibly inspiring. Absolutely. Now, uh, what do you think about his message there about, um, because I, I don't know about you. I don't have any plans to leave what I'm doing. I don't have plans to leave the States. I don't have plans. And his kind of critique, but also it's honest. It's what he's wrestling with mm-hmm. going, we're all fishing the same pond. We go, oh, that worked for that guy. There's kind of this critique within what he's saying of the American church. Right. How do we live that out a little better? Hmm without leaving the states without going or is that just not possible no i think it is i think some people do need to leave though i, mm-hmm. I think you know when you think of like alan hirsch's apest right apostle prophet evangelist shepherd teacher i think francis chan has a very strong evangelistic bent mm-hmm. so part of what the fishing metaphor misses is that some of the role of the church is formation mm-hmm. is to grow and raise disciples and some of those people will then leave the country or leave your city. So it's it's not the church's role isn't just simply this quote unquote fishing, right? So if there are other like what he says, houses around the lake, I think that's a great analogy. And I think that probably is why plenty of us stay like, yeah. this is comfortable. I could I could keep doing this. Yeah. I think that should be convicting for many of us, especially if we've been feeling this nudge. But I also think the role of the church isn't just evangelistic. That's just one of these five roles that I think if we only focus on any one of those, I think we're a little deficient. So like to see the church as also formative and also really good. city transforming, I think that's an important counterbalance. Yeah, and I think bring it up just as also say, if you've been watching the progression in Francis Chan's life, like you said, from kind of speaker with a mega church to right. kind of getting out of the mega church to this or that, like in some ways, this is the logical next step. But it's still yeah. kind of surprising to read like, OK, maybe Francis Chan's. I doubt you're flying back from Myanmar often to be speaking, you know, at different places. I think he's yeah. probably going to clear the schedule. And Yeah, but I tell you what, though, in Chicago and in particular, when we've seen a number of people like fall from power yeah. because they seem to be focused only on gaining power. Yes. I find this move refreshing. I do, too. I do, too. So you can find more. Again, this spe- this uh, sermon at Azusa Pacific was just today. Uh, and so uh, just a very interesting move and an inspiring one there by Francis Chan. Well, coming up next. We're going to talk about Microsoft Japan and their four-day work week experiment and what it did to productivity. I think you'll find it interesting. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Thursday afternoon. When it's Thursday afternoon, we can only mean one thing. It's almost Friday. You know how much I love Fridays. <laughs> you love Fridays so uh, much. I am such a big fan of Fridays. It's uh, it's good. It's good. So Thank God it's Friday. Man, you and I, we've got all our caffeine going now, our bowl of popcorn. It's like a party here on uh, The Common Good. Huh? <laughs> We That's might, all it takes for a party. This show might end, and you and I, I might just stay here eating popcorn. And I don't think. I don't think you will. If my wife is listening. That is a joke. <laughs> we we are coming home. Yes, I am coming home. I uh, am. So you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. Twitter at Common Good Talk. Online eleven sixty hope dot com, and you could call us three one two six six zero two five nine four. That's three one two six six zero two five nine. Well, uh, I saw a really interesting article that 
about Microsoft and Microsoft in Japan and their four day work week experiment. And what the what the headline tells us is it's their four day work week experiment saw productivity jump 40 percent. Wow. It went up 40 percent. So Microsoft Japan tested a four day uh, work week and has found the experiment a huge boon to employee productivity. The tech giant recorded an almost 40% jump in productivity levels after cutting its work hours as part of a wider project to promote healthier work-life balance. Mm. Microsoft's Work-Life Choice Challenge, held this August, saw the firm close its doors on Friday and give its 2,300 employees three-day work weekend, uh, three-day weekends for the full month to assess the merits of a reduced work week. Over that period, the firm saw productivity as measured by sales per employee rise 39.9% compared to August of 2018. Wow. That boon was thanks in part, Microsoft said, to meetings capped at 30 minutes and an increase in remote conferences. Meanwhile, the firm saw a fall in costs with 23.1% less electricity used and 58.7% fewer pages printed over that period. The experiment also incorporated self-development and family wellness schemes, recorded largely positive feedback from employees, too, with 92.1 saying they liked the four-day work week. Wait, who's the 7.9 that <laughs> didn't like it? Who are those thing? people? So Microsoft Japan says that it is now planning to conduct a similar work-life challenge this winter aimed at encouraging greater flexible Working, The notion of a four-day work week has been gaining traction as advocates highlight its possible benefits in reducing stress and preventing overwork. In fact, the impacts of overwork are felt ac- acutely in Japan, which is known for having some of the world's longest working hours. Uh, in fact, Japan has even coined its own term for the extreme culture, karashi, which translates as death by overwork. So there's so much here, but I guess I would ask you this, does that does that percentage surprise you that when they took an, an extra day off, made it a 4-day work week and capped meetings and other things, that productivity rose by 40%. It actually does not surprise me. You skipped the one sentence that I thought was actually like the anchor to the whole thing. I wanted to let you read it. <laughs> you I just knew. You could just, just sense knew. it. According to a 2016 government study, almost a quarter of Japanese companies require employees to work more than 80 hours overtime a month. Oh, gosh. A quarter. That's crazy. Yeah. Which actually reminds me, I did a, a paper in college, so this would have been, what, 40 years ago or whatever? <laughs> um and the the whole the whole study it was a group of auto engineers from Detroit, my hometown, that flew over to Japan to study some of their kind of work life balance stuff. So this is twenty years ago yeah. now, something like that. And part of what they found because they were kind of killing them at the time in terms of innovation. Okay, and all, so they wanted to like try to get behind the scenes a little bit. Like why are they why are they beating us in all these areas? And one of the things they found was that when somebody has a great innovation or there's a great success, they shut everything down and they celebrate. And they said that was the single greatest thing they found was that they, uh-huh. their auto companies celebrate win and success and innovation so much better than we do. Where They were kind of highlighting by contrast that so, so often when there's a great innovation or a great success, there's a golf clap and then we just keep on driving. Yeah. We, keep on, we keep on going. So the whole premise of the article was, is it possible that actually hitting pause, shutting everything down, not only is healthier, you will actually have better success in your mm. innovation and production. And yeah. so honestly, reading this is kind of bringing me back to that article that I wrote, that, that paper that I wrote, because I think that this is now 40 percent 
was higher than I thought. I don't yeah. understand how taking one day off reduces uh, the use of paper by 58.7%. Yeah. I that w- seems crazy. I wonder if that has to do also with some of the other changes they made about meat. I like hidden in there is the fact that they capped meetings at 30 minutes. Yeah. Like what was that book uh, years ago? Death by meeting. Uh huh. That right. is just really powerful. Like right. sometimes it's like you ever get to the end of your day and you're like, I know I met with a lot of people today, but I don't know what I accomplished. <laughs> you know, being married has helped highlight some of that. She's yes. like, what did you do today? And I'm like, what did I Emails. I did all. I just answered a sea of emails, and I don't type well, so it takes me extra long. But I, I emailed, and then they emailed back, and then I emailed them back to right. them, and then back and forth. When I could have just called them. I think there's a lot going on. I think I've mentioned to you before. When I was in fifth grade, I wrote a paper uh, arguing for why we shouldn't go to school on Fridays, which is not nearly as smart as this, obviously. Yeah. But I like really like made this. I was going to send it to Congress to see if I can get it passed, or it's I forget the story. The Simpkins but, bill. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I, I think, and again, obviously not to like over-spiritualize, I think there's a lot to be said about the rhythms in which we were made to live yeah. and how the trick, at least for me, the myth that just continuing to work harder and faster and longer will actually result yep. in greater productivity. It's the like the old adage, you know, the, um, the two, there's a, what's the story? It's like a sermon illustration. Two guys had a wood chomping competition and one guy just kept axing and axing and axing. And the other guy like kept taking regular like breaks mm. and the guy that kept taking breaks eventually won. And so the guy that, you know, was just axing, axing, axing was like, how, how on earth did you win? Every time I looked over my shoulder, you're like eating a snack or taking a break. <laughs> He's like, ah, but what you didn't see is that also when I was taking those breaks, I was sharpening my ax. Oh, wow. And that idea that like we think, particularly in the West, just go harder and faster and more is going to actually get more done. When we see study after study after study, typically in other countries, by the way, yes. that like that might not actually be true. And nothing in here says that Microsoft Japan expected less. You know, they didn't expect 80 percent of the work because they were only doing 80 percent of the work days. It was right. still. And in fact, productivity jumped up. There, there is so much learning in that for us just with work. But I think you, you, you nailed it right there with like. Well, how often on this show do we talk about Sabbath and taking uh-huh, breaks right. and taking rest and it being even more than just good for you physically, mm-hmm. but like good for your mind, good for your soul, good for everything. And that's why it's a gift in the Bible, right? This gift of Sabbath. But how many of us just go, well, we don't have to do that anymore. Right. I don't have to Sabbath. I don't need to rest. And you're like, no, it's not a it's not a have to. It's not a need to. Uh, it's this gift. So. Uh, maybe pastorally give a one or two pieces of advice to the person out there who's tired from work today. And they're like, Mm. I'm overworked. I don't, I know that I need to break, but I just don't know how maybe what's one or two things that come to mind for you. Oh man, there's a quote. I can't remember who said it anymore. Nope. I just found it. I just did it. Wayne Muller says Sabbath is not dependent upon our readiness to stop. Mm. We do not stop when we are finished. We do not stop. When we complete our phone calls, finish our project, get through the stack of messages or get out this report that is due tomorrow, we stop because it is time to stop. And I think if we had another five, six minutes, I talk about desire. Yeah. I think so often our desires, what drives our manic obsession with constantly doing and accomplishing yeah. and being, and I think that can drive us to some really dangerous behavior. And so if you're in that place, honestly, sometimes maybe the holiest thing you can do is just take a nap mm. because God builds into the very creation of the universe, this Sabbath rhythm yeah. and the very first full day that Adam and Eve experience is a day of rest, mm. not as recovery from all the work they've done, but they begin first with this posture of this is who I am before yeah. I can accomplish anything for God. He says, just rest, yeah, just that's take good. a break. 
it's how how often when someone says how are you oh how are you doing and you, how much times do we answer oh just really busy I'm well, really yeah, busy like busy. it's a badge well, of honor yeah yeah and, and there's times to be busy but even when in, the, in those seasons there's some perspective and so a really interesting study from Microsoft Japan there the four day work week actually increasing productivity well coming up next here on the common good we're going to talk about uh, this new controversial pro-choice campaign that claims abortion is loving and selfless coming up next on the common good am 1160 hope for your life welcome back to the common good am 1160 hope for your life alongside ian simpkins my name is brian Fromm. glad to have you joining us I'm uh, back. You are still so, here. It was so loud. So was, I like it. Huh? Jeez, yeah. How much coffee have you had? <laughs> Too much. Yes. We always like to say how I've I always come here with a big iced tea. Another Trenta today. Iced tea <laughs> lemonade because I got it for free. You brag about Trentas like a, I, but, like a frat boy bragging it's, beers. It's because, <laughs> because I had enough stars on my mobile app to get it for free. And I'm like, then I'm getting the biggest possible one that I can. This is the most suburban conversation I've had. <laughs> I had so many stars on my account that I got a Trenta iced tea on my way to the radio station. I still don't understand why Francis Chan is leaving America. <laughs> What's he talking Just about? Just keep fishing, Brian. Just keep fishing. <laughs> That's a very funny <laughs> My eyes just rolled back into my head halfway through that sentence. I just, oh, gosh. <laughs> so many stars on my app. I could get a big drink. <laughs> Was it an iPhone? Yes. Yeah, of course it was. Yes, and I ordered ahead. Hey, you... Oh boy. Oh, I'm so sneaking my pillow in there. So guilty as charged right there. <laughs> I mean, same. Oh. I don't I have no room to judge by the way at all whatsoever. Oh, no, so you called me out pretty good. That was good. That was good. <laughs> no, well, it's not a call out. I'm no, saying no, no, we're in the mean, same like, boat. We're in the I same boat. Like, that is actually really true. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can call us 312-660-259. Uh, for and listen to our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. So, uh, Christian headlines. We uh, tend to talk when when abortion kind of comes up. Uh, I do think something I feel strongly about. Uh, something you've said you feel strongly about. And so this headline caught my eyes. Let me just read a little bit of it, and then I want to ask uh, just some questions about it. So the headline at ChristianHeadlines.com says, Abortion is loving and selfless, says controversial pro-choice campaign. A pro-choice organization ignited a social media debate this week with a new campaign claiming abortion is an act of love and selflessness. The Abortion Actually campaign by the National Women's Law Center is intended to, quote, reframe the conversation and fight back against the assault on abortion rights in our country, according to the campaign's website. Abortion and the people who have them have been called a lot of things, they write, but what an abortion is actually an act of love, an act of compassion, an act of healing, an act of selflessness. Uh, and so they, that was a tweet that they sent out. Uh, and so as you read that, um, just wondering how that strikes you, if that strikes you, this whole idea of reframing and how they've reframed it. I don't like it. <laughs> that is good. Is that fair? Yes. Um, let me just read a little more. Yeah, go for it. So it's uh, Yumi Park, senior manager of campaign and digital strategies for the National Women's Law Center, wrote a blog explaining the usage of the words. And Park said, if you've had an abortion or are thinking about getting an abortion, we see your love for yourself and others. We see your healing and the healing of your communities. We see your self-preservation and your selflessness. We see your compassion and we love you. But on social media, reaction was the reactions were mixed. Uh, as Gloria Steinem, Steinem said so well, if men could get pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament. 
another person wrote, I had my abortions out of compassion and kindness. I knew I couldn't care for children that they would suffer. Mm. Most people on social media, though, question the campaign's logic. Yes. Stopping the beating heart of the unborn so that you don't have to take responsibility is such a selfless act. One person wrote using sarcasm. I like how the article said using, <laughs> using sarcasm. sarcasm. Uh, yes. Another person wrote giving life is love, not taking it. Choosing life is indeed the most selfless act of all. Still another wrote selfless. I don't care about anyone but myself. I don't want to be a mother. I am not ready. The money spent on fighting to kill should be put to daycares and ways to help and support and care for mothers. Mm. Again, just kind of an ugly story. It is, I, it is um, very odd to me that this is where we're at right now. It is. I think uh, it's interesting the lines that are being drawn and the ways that things are being reframed. I don't know that like sarcastic Facebook comments no. is the ways for us to move the ball down the field. Yeah. Um, I don't even know that you and I talking about on a radio show is necessarily helpful, mm-hmm. but maybe it. Maybe it is. Maybe even knowing that these types of statements are out there creates a helpful space for us to kind of grapple with some yep. of the messiness of that. So I guess one reason I brought it up was, A, just to point it out. Right. You know, like you said, things have really moved. Even the the Clintons, I remember Bill Clinton would talk to often about it being trying to make abortion as safe and rare as possible. Right. And now people who say that on that uh, side of the aisle really are, are like uh, kind of shouted down a little uh-huh. bit. Right. Um, like, why would you want to make it rare, basically? But I guess here's where I wanted to go with this okay. and where I think we can add, a, add something. Because like you said, we could just rail about it and then go to break. Right. Right. Uh, but here's where I want to go. It is interesting that the pro-choice that an, an arm of the pro-choice movement here is trying to, quote unquote, reframe the conversation. Yeah. And I'm wondering, those of us who are pro-life, uh, do we need to think about reframing how we speak about it? Is there something that mm. we, that in your mind we could be doing? And I know it's painting with a broad brush when you say the movement. Yeah. But is there something that Christians can be doing when we speak about abortion and our feelings about it that could be seen as a bit of a reframing, but might be more helpful to be uh, to either show compassion and love or help people understand our heart? Uh, or is how we're going about it, again, as a quote unquote broad brush here is the right way to do it. Well, and I think I would love to know what you have in your mind as far as a reframing, because um, again, not knowing this person, but like the one person wrote using sarcasm um, again, uh, I'm even the assumption here, stopping the beating heart of the unborn Sue, you don't have to take responsibility is also, can we agree a little tone deaf? You don't actually know the story of the person on the other end, the the receiving end of your comment there. So I think that's one starting point. If we can bite our tongue long enough to not respond with sarcasm, that's probably not helpful. And I know plenty of people will feel justified in using sarcasm. If you know their their argument might be, Hey, in the bigger scheme of things, my sarcasm is the least of our worries (laughs) in in this fight or in this argument. So, you know, I could see someone making the case for that right now, but I'd, I'd love to know from your perspective, what, what, what do you have in your head that you think could be a helpful way to reframe I, it? I just worry, like a lot of our political conversations, like this is a debate or not even a debate. This is an issue that I think we both, but I'll speak for myself, feel really strongly about. And so want to uh, see some traction on this. I want to support places like Caring Network and other places. Uh, but I do wonder, like a lot of our political debates, as we've talked a couple times in this show, that that we get so polarized that we can become nasty. Yeah, I'm not sure, sure. nastiness from uh i'll use this phrase our side of the debate the pro-life side is helpful Mm. uh it makes us feel better sometimes to yell and scream and sometimes yelling and screaming when when it's about policy but let's not be so naive as to think that every woman that has an abortion is like humming a tune as they walk in and feeling excited about it right and now 
all fairness, most people, including organizations and individuals that I know in the pro-life world, uh, they do show this compassion. But sometimes it's how we present it in the media and how we present mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, from political stages and stuff that it's more about uh, an issue that we want to yell about as opposed to like. How can we show the love of Christ right. to those who are hurting in such a way that they would even consider an abortion? Right, exactly. Uh, and again, most people do a great job at that. But when it comes to reframing for me, I wonder if there's some reframing uh, to the way we just generally enter it in a uh, in a posture of compassion and love while still believing strongly in the sanctity of life of that baby. Because ultimately, that's the goal, right, to see yeah. uh, less babies aborted. Um, but I'm not sure our methodology is always well. And I wonder the same way I think this pro-choice campaign is going. Mm, I think we've got an image problem. How about we go at it this way? Mm. Uh, it, they're not changing what they want in the end. Yeah. And so I'm not saying the pro-life movement. I don't want to see any changes for what we're trying to accomplish. Sometimes I worry that the way we go about it mm. kind of pushes people further and further away. Yeah, I remember in high school, I, I even had a abortionist murder sweatshirt. Did you really? And I used to wear around and I, it actually kind of grieves me a little bit to think about, and I don't, I don't have any evidence of this, but I imagine, I mean, I wore it out a lot. Mm. I wonder if a young woman passing me in the street saw that and she had an abortion yeah. and it just wrecked her and it just, and I know there are plenty of people like good, it should wreck her, you know, like that. Mm-hmm. that I think that is exactly getting at the heart of the lack of compassion that maybe yeah. you're talking about that. And again, I, I don't. I know that people have these stickers and sweatshirts or whatever. Yep. I just look back, at least in my life, and I grieve. I grieve That's good. that tactic, that yep. methodology, that I could be walking down the street and someone who doesn't know me at all, and I don't know them, but I'm. I am making a declaration that mm-hmm. you know, in hindsight, I actually don't know is the most Christ-like way yeah. to go about it. Yeah, and that's what we want to encourage us is to think about. Uh, not what do do we believe in abortion or against it? Like we're here saying like we, we want to see as few abortions as possible. We want to see it go away. We, we believe fully in the sanctity of life. What's our methodology to try to to put it in a weird way, win people over to try to show the compassion and, and be Jesus to people who are really hurting to many people who are really hurting in those moments? Well, we would love your uh, your uh, feedback on this Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. Uh, you can always call us six three one two six six zero two five nine four. But in the definition of a hard right turn, we are going to end this show with some interweb insanity coming up here next on the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. All right, well, we're back here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. This is, let's be honest, you missed the last three days. This is the part of the show you missed, wasn't it? Oh, for sure. I don't even like the rest of the show. <laughs> the rest <laughs> of the show is just to get to here. It's just the opening act to the main event, <laughs> Interweb Insanity. And uh, this is Interweb Insanity. We always say it comes from PJ, our producer, and our executive producer, Keith Conrad. No, not this time. Tell me more. All PJ. What? All John. So have, we, have we run this through leadership? Are we sure this is safe? This is true. Uh, the, the mics are live. Oh, boy. The mics are live. So if you're insulted by this, be insulted by PJ. If you think this is funny, give him a little tip I'll, of the I'll cap. I'll do some PR. It's fine. If you would like to get set up on PJ's double date at Panera called You Pick 2. It's coming. <laughs> the You oh, Pick 2. We're never two. inviting Scott back. Uh, I can't believe he brought that up. Oh, now it's on our plate, man. That's happening. Oh, I want to do a show just me and Scott. He, he next, would love it. Would he do it next yeah. time you're gone? Yeah, Scott. Because he, he, he and I go further back than you and he do. <laughs> you and he? 
Do I know how to talk? He no. and, oh, you do go further and back. Scott should be listening right now, but I'm guessing he's not. He's probably not. <laughs> you go first. Here we go. All right, here we go. California. Banana truck crash temporarily closes lanes on 110 freeway through Harbor Gateway uh, area. This doesn't seem funny at all. Most of the southbound 110 freeway in the Harbor Gateway area was temporarily closed to traffic after a banana truck crashed early Thursday morning. I ha- there's a, like a Mario Kart joke in here somewhere. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is. The crash was reported on the freeway shortly before 2 a.m. near Redondo Beach Boulevard, according to the California Highway Patrol. Several vehicles were involved in the crash, including a turtle. <laughs> don't, don't, I'm like, look, I'm like, that's not what I see. Yeah, don't encourage me. This is Mario and his brother Luigi were perfectly fine. <laughs> Do you remember this show? No. Yes, you do. No. Bananas and pajamas? I have no idea what this is. Are you serious? I'm positive. We're close enough in age. I can't believe you've never heard of... I have no idea. It was a weird, like, kids television show in the era of, like, uh, Barney and all that. Super weird. This one's out of Chicago. Oh, gosh. Uh, Boozo the Clown. (laughs) Off-duty cop charged with battering officer in Boys Town on Halloween night. Wait. Oh, I got sad. Now it turned dark, but Boozo was fun. Boozo, yeah. An off-duty Chicago police officer struck an on-duty cop in the face while dressed as a clown on Halloween night in Boys Town, according to prosecutors and the woman's mugshot. Yeah, it's, it's a heck of a mugshot. That's quite the clown. The <laughs> accused officer, who has two years on the force, is assigned to desk duty until an internal investigation is completed. Around 1 a.m. on November 1st, a doorman at Charlie's Nightclub told 30-year-old off-duty cop Karina Salgado that she could not enter the bar. Uh, Salgado made another attempt to enter the bar, then left. Officers caught up with Salgado, told her that she was barred from entering the club, then blocked her path when she tried to enter the bar again. Salgado allegedly struck an officer in the face, leading to her arrest. That is Boozo the Clown. (laughs) Hey, hey, what's going on here? Rocky the Clown, you're under arrest for armed robbery. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say, blah, 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 blah. It's a joke. <laughs> Is it surprising to you that she was only assigned desk duty? <laughs> you struck a police officer dressed as a clown. There you go. <laughs> you or I do that, we're not getting desk duty. No. no. All right. Canada, curb damaged by city truck 26 years ago, scheduled for repair <laughs> by 2037. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, uh, Calvin Howley. Howley? Howley. Hawley. Hawley? Sure. Whatever. Says he can remember the exact moment he found the curb outside his home wrecked by a city snow removal machine. Quote, I came home from the hospital and discovered a large chunk of curb under a whole whack of snow. Have you heard that? Nope. Turn of phrase. Okay. Oh, whack of snow. Oh, look at that whack of snow. Uh, that was January 26, 1993. The day is clear in his mind because that's when his second son was born. 26 years later, it's almost comical to him. It is kind of funny when you think about it. It will be a grand day when they actually come out. After years of complaints, he finally has a date. 2037. <laughs> but Holly isn't the only Winnipeg resident waiting decades for repairs to residential streets. Holly says he called the city of Winnipeg in early spring of 1993 and continued to call off uh, call off and on over the years. He was promised repairs, but no action. Progress, not perfection. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Johnson well in this one. So Way far. to go, PJ. Iowa. Man serving life sentence says it ended once he died was revived in medical emergency. Wait, 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 wait. He's got a point. He's got a point. A man convicted of murder was rushed from the Iowa State Penitentiary to a hospital in 2015 where his heart was restarted five times. 
He claims his life sentence was fulfilled by his short-lived death, and he's overstayed his prison time by four years. No. Benjamin Schreiber, found guilty of first-degree murder in 1997 and sentenced to life behind bars without the possibility of parole, was hospitalized in March of 2015 after large kidney stones caused him to develop septic poisoning. By the time he arrived at the hospital, he was unconscious. Though Schreiber signed a do-not-resuscitate agreement years earlier, medical staff called his brother, who told them if he's in pain, you may give him something to ease the pain, otherwise let him pass. Schreiber filed for post-conviction relief in 2018, claiming that because he momentarily died, he fulfilled his life sentence. He was sentenced to life without parole, but not to life plus one day, Schreiber argued. The district court denied Schreiber's request, writing that it found his claim unpersuasive and without merit. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. That feels like it's going to be like a uh, case study in a philosophy yes, class. Right. <laughs> of course. Also, that drop is perfect because uh, our last one's from England. Neighbor from hell. Neighbor spelled with a U, of course. Spied on his neighbors. Neighbors. I think is how you pronounce that. And woke them with chainsaw Ooh. at 4 a.m. Yikes. Uh, an elderly homeowner spied on his neighbors and kept them awake with his noisy power tools during a bizarre war against families living in his cul-de-sac. Michael Hall enraged residents by routinely rousing them as early as 4 a.m. either by starting his noisy camper van or by switching on his chainsaw leaf blower and angle grinder. Angle grinder? Sure. All right, why not? To do some early morning gardening or DIY. The early bird pensioner also erected CCTV surveillance cameras above wrought iron gate. Police were called in after company managing director Timothy Royal, who lives next door to 65-year-old Hall, <laughs> kept a video diary detailing months of misery at the hands of his nightmare neighbor during the so-called War of Thornton Drive. Mark, do you want to see my new chainsaw and hockey mask? We had, we had to get more Simpsons in there. That's obviously, good. Obviously, a good dark way to end. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of dark. Ugh. Dark outside already. I'm going to bed. <laughs> hey, man, it's good to have you back. Thanks, man. Good Thank, to be back. Thanks for actually coming back. I was afraid I'd show up today and be like, Ian? Well, I Ian? think meant next Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> We're glad to have you join us. You can join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.